Built Unstoppable is a weekly podcast that features a new guest each week who shares their experiences, learnings, and helpful tips for achieving your greatest potential. Welcome to episode number 12 of the Built Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Justin Levy, and today I'm joined by Josh Mance. Josh is a retired Army major who is nationally recognized expert in trauma. He is a recipient of the Purple Heart, Bronze Star with Valor, and the Combat Infantry's Badge. He's also one of 25 veterans showcased in the National Veterans Memorial Museum in Columbus, Ohio. In his book, The Beauty of a Darker Soul, Josh details a sniper attack causing him to flatline for 15 minutes before being revived by an expert medical team. Thanks for joining today, Josh. Hey, it's good to be here with you, Justin. If you wouldn't mind, could you delve into what happened in those moments leading up to the sniper attack? Yeah, sure. Um, I think context is pretty important. Um, you know, we were in, uh, uh, we were, I was deployed to Baghdad. I was an infantry officer at the time leading an infantry platoon, uh, actually a scout platoon at the time. Um, and this was in Northeastern Baghdad during the height of, uh, the surge, the troop surge, uh, in the Middle East. Um, so this was a, uh, not a conventional warfare environment. This was a counterinsurgency environment, um, which, uh, you know, I think it's really important to emphasize here that uh, in a lot of respects, the nature of that environment is is grounded in building relationships and building trust with the local population. Um, it is not necessarily grounded in uh, military tactics and violence alone, although that's a part of it. Um, so for context, uh, you know, I served as an infantry officer during you know, one of the most violent times of the war during uh, one of the most violent areas uh, of the entire war, and I never fired my weapon. Uh, that's not to say I wasn't prepared to, but uh, our, our, our focus and our emphasis was on uh, building trust with the local people. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, the insurgents were outnumbered, they were under-resourced, and we never saw them. Um, you know, naturally, they uh, fought from the shadows, uh, a lot of hit-and-run tactics, so, you know, even if we tried to engage our enemy after they fired upon us, we would only risk harming innocent members of the population. So, so, so that was going on for a number of months. And, um, you know, this kind of leads us to this day, uh, which was April 21st, 2007. And, and that morning, we were actually conducting a humanitarian patrol in conjunction with uh, some of our Iraqi police partners to the northern part of our sector near Sadr City, uh, which is a, a very violent part of Baghdad. Uh, lo lo lots of issues coming out of there at the time. Uh, and we were really just trying to establish a foothold and, and build relationships with the people. But it was during the course of that humanitarian patrol, which was going quite well, uh, that we actually got diverted to another part of the sector a couple miles away uh, to investigate a recent attack on American soldiers. And uh, nobody was hurt in that attack and there was no damage, but an insurgent fired a rocket propelled grenade at a American unit passing through uh, and then ran away. Uh, and we were sent over there to basically investigate what happened and to, to see if we could find out anything in terms of who fired that rocket. And while we were over there, uh, we noticed a suspicious vehicle uh, 
slowly driving around about a block or two away. Uh, and, and for us, that's, that's an indication that that individual in that car could be an insurgent uh, who is attempting to videotape our tactics to use them either as propaganda or, or as a training tool for, for them to study our tactics. So stopped that driver and I, I walked up to the driver with one of my senior non-commissioned officers, uh, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper. Uh, and and I, like Justin, when I, when I first got to the car door, this individual did not feel like an insurgent. Um, he was an older gentleman. He was visibly shaking and scared, which in retrospect, that could have been another sign. Something was about to go down. But nonetheless, uh, I looked in his back seat and saw a, what was probably a $5,000 video camera uh, openly laying in the back seat. So, uh, you know, obviously right there, there's plenty of probable cause to detain that driver and to bring him in for further questioning. But again, I, I you know, placed such a heavy focus on building relationships and trust that I wanted to make sure that we gave that driver uh, the benefit of the doubt and did everything we could to confirm his innocence or guilt before pulling him in for questioning. And because of that, I decided to conduct an explosives test on his fingers. And uh, this is similar to what you would get if you're going through an airport at TSA uh, and they, they swipe your uh, luggage with, with, you know, those, those, those little swipes. Um, we, we basically have something like that. And, uh, you know, it takes 30 seconds to 60 seconds to do it. And unfortunately, while we were conducting that test is when we were engaged by that sniper. Um, the, the bullet actually first entered uh, the left arm of my senior non-commissioned officer, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper. It severed his aorta, and then it ricocheted into my thigh and severed my femoral artery. Um, so in that instance, uh, plus a, a third piece of that bullet broke off and struck one of our interpreters, uh, a non-lethal wound, but uh, what you see here is in an instant in time, uh, three people were wounded, two of them critically wounded, uh, and within two minutes from death. And, and that, that basically brings you up to the current moment of this situation. So I think that one of the biggest questions people will have is based on any memories you have after that bullet hit you and you know everything that happened around them what does being medically dead for 15 minutes feel like even if it's at the beginning and at the end of that when you were brought back to life well yeah that's a it's a it's a really big question um so it's actually kind of that question that pushed me to go to grad school and study metaphysics and consciousness to really evaluate this experience in a more responsible way. You know, there, there are multiple evolutions of consciousness throughout this experience after getting hit by, that, by this bullet. Uh, first of all, the death was not instantaneous for me. For Marlon, it pretty much was. But I, I, I would say between the time uh, I was shot and the time that I flatlined uh, was probably about 30 minutes. So uh, there, there's, there's a number of altered states of consciousness that I went through uh, throughout this process leading towards the final transition to death. The first I can relate to people uh, I, I, somewhat, I think, um, 
which is when when I was initially struck by the bullet, uh, what what happens right during a, a catastrophic life threatening injury, and uh, you really have to you really have to kind of take a couple of deep breaths, slow down, and 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 remember that we are we are talking about this experience retrospectively right now, but in order to really understand what it's like you have to be willing to go back into the experience and relive it in real time. And uh, one thing that happens when our bodies are facing a life threat is that we enter into what's called the autonomic response, um, more commonly known as fight, flight, or freeze responses. Uh, This is a limbic system response. Uh, The more primitive part of our brain essentially takes over Um, and our rational minds for the most part go offline and we become passengers of our own experience. Um, uh, for example, uh, if, you know, a common example is if we're walking uh, along a path in the middle of the woods and we jump back in fear, uh, because we think we see a snake on the ground, but then a second later we realize we were mistaken. It was just a coiled up rope on the ground that instant in time where we jumped backwards in that instant in time, our, our rational minds are not in control, right? Our, our, our body acts as a sensor to the environment and our bodies are aware of threats before we are. This is a more primitive function, meaning that the body can sometimes be wrong. But in, in the case of where you're uh, basically uh, less willing to, t- the body is less willing to take risk at the expense of potentially stepping on a snake, right? So it doesn't have to be perfect in that moment. Uh, it, it, it is merely jumping back in, in order to protect ourselves, right? Well, for most people, like if we get stung by a bee or if we get stung by an insect, or, you know, or if we see that potential snake on the ground, that initial reaction is kind of a fight, flight, or freeze kind of response. And Normally, it lasts very quickly. Um, you know, a, a second or two later, our, our rational minds catch back up, and, and we uh, we realize that the it either was or was not a threat. Um, but in my case, what was interesting about this is I experienced a prolonged autonomic response that was drawn out over about fifteen seconds or so. In which, during that time, I went through all three of the autonomic phases based on the changing sensory inputs at hand, uh, meaning that I experienced fight, flight, and freeze as my body was responding to the environment. So what happened is at first I didn't even know that I was shot, of course. Um, and in fact, I didn't know that I was shot until I came back to life a couple of days later, which is, which is just important to kind of keep in a perspective but uh, after when I was shot, the, in, the initial uh, concussion of that bullet felt like I was being slowly picked up by the swell of an ocean wave. Time shifted to slow motion. So there's, there's this, this brings in altered states of consciousness, such as slow motion time, fast motion time, auditory distortion, and that I could only hear the muted shot of that sniper round and my own voice calling for a medic. As I... Um, my initial response was more of a flight response. It was a reaction from the bullet, which again, I didn't even know that it was a bullet. I didn't even know that I was shot, right? My, I know this in retrospect, but if we're in the experience in real time, we got to kind of empathize with our own bodies uh, and realize that we are vulnerable to our own bodies. 
uh, in these experiences. Uh, so, so uh, you know, just keep that in mind. But uh, dis- despite that, the first reaction was more of a, a jumping back. So it was kind of a flight response. Uh, and then the, the sensory inputs changed that I was seeing in the environment. The very next thing I saw or, or remember seeing was Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper's face, uh, who was standing several feet away. And here's where I experienced hypervision, tunnel vision. It was like an extreme magnification of his face. And uh, it was kind of a, a primal indication that something was terribly wrong. And, and of course, it was really his last conscious moment of life. But the power of that scene, the power of that image was enough to literally convert my body from a flight response to a fight response in order to move through the situation and resolve the, uh, the threat at hand, uh, which in this case, I responded by immediately dragging him to safety. Uh, so he slowly fell to the ground in slow motion. And then that sense of slow motion time converted into a sense of fast motion time and almost a, hu- a superhuman strength. In, in these types of situations, also an, another thing about the power of the autonomic response is, is that uh, the body shuts down everything that it does not need to resolve the threat. Uh, meaning I felt no pain, no physical pain, and I experienced almost a superhuman kind of strength in dragging him out of the way. Uh, with all of his gear on, he weighed at least 250 pounds, uh, if not considerably more. And I had a blown out femoral artery, which I didn't know yet. Um, but I kind of drug him seamlessly. He felt like a feather. And I drug, drug him to a safe location. And that's where uh, I started to remove his gear, his, his equipment, uh, you know, lots of zippers, belts, buckles, And when I lifted up his shirt, that's where kind of the freeze response came in. The one instant in time where I froze during this experience, uh, because I saw the severity of his wound, uh, which was probably a half dollar sized exit wound directly over his aorta, you know, and just, it's the largest artery in the body, right? It's, it's, it was, uh, just gushing blood. I've never seen any, any wound quite that severe before. Um, so that was kind of, uh, 15 seconds into the experience and uh, right at that point in time is when my medic arrived. Uh, so my medic was only 19 years old uh, and he performed brilliantly that day. But, you know, bear in mind that this is the point where a 19 year old uh, first realized that he had two catastrophic injuries to deal with at the same time and that he could not save both of us. So he had to make a conscious choice between who he was going to try to save and who was going to potentially die. Uh, This is a situation known as an irresolvable moral dilemma. You know, as you mentioned, I do a lot of work in trauma uh, and a lot of the foundations of trauma really, you know, kind of at the foundational level, they really tend to stem down to moral wounds, moral trauma, moral injury. And this is one of those situations that can potentially induce it. So I think uh, with the arrival of that medic, I kind of sensed the safety that came with him and, and simultaneously, my body had expended all of its autonomic resources, right? There was no energy left. <laughs> and um, at that point, I also, you know, I, I had lost a considerable amount of blood by that point already, again, which I wasn't aware of. But um, I collapsed to my left side and then went into, you know, I, I would consider that the end of the autonomic response and the beginning of another altered state of consciousness, which was quite bizarre. 
so I think I would have died there uh, within the next, you know, couple seconds. Um, I, 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 I was kind of in a state of what I would describe as subconsciousness for a few seconds. Again, no, no pain. I, I just felt like I was falling into a deeper and deeper sleep. I still was experiencing auditory distortion. My team members began to drag me across the desert floor and I, I could feel my body dragging across the floor. And then just as I was about to go unconscious, that's when things changed. I, I heard one of my team members just yell at me at the top of his lungs and he said, come on, sir, stay awake. And it was in that moment where even in the state that I was in, I could hear the pain in his voice, the emotional pain in his voice. And, and I had this kind of awareness that this injury was not just about me. It was about everyone on the team. And, um, and that I, I had to do whatever I could to, to, to fight to stay alive, to help my team through this situation. Uh, and, and the power of that moment was really enough to kind of snap me back to full consciousness, uh, which is where the fight for my life really began. So following that, the uh, medical evacuation process continued. And, and at this point in time, I was conscious, but it, 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 it felt more like, uh, you know, I had lost a, a ton of blood and the medic was all over it. He, he cinched up I believe two tourniquets throughout the the evacuation process as we were heading to the medical station. And uh, during the during the ride there, which probably lasted ten minutes or so, I was really just fighting to stay conscious. I was I was fighting to uh, make it to that aid station. That was my only goal. I felt like I had just you know if if you've ever donated blood or given blood, people often feel very queasy afterwards. So, so essentially it's that feeling, but magnified by about 10. So I, it, was, it wasn't a feeling of physical pain. It was more of a uh, kind of a feeling sick, right? Uh, just kind of hanging on by a thread. Uh, but nonetheless, we did make it to the aid station and, and um, the ramp on that vehicle dropped and I was greeted by an expert medical team led by Dr. Dave de Blasio. And uh, they pulled me into the aid station uh, and here's where things really started to kind of get interesting by way of near-death experiences and consciousness. By this point in time, I was a couple minutes from death. I knew I had lost uh, a considerable amount of blood because I could hear the medics saying that. And while they were working on me, uh, you know, first of all, especially given the current situation that we're facing globally right now with COVID-19 and the stress that that is placed on our medical system and our emergency medical professionals. I think it's really important to emphasize that it was a privilege to still be conscious, to be able to watch this team work. You know, they, they, they conducted the most well-rehearsed drill I've ever seen in my life. They were, they were well-led. They worked as a cohesive team. Watching them was like watching a choreographed dance. And even in the state that I was in, it, it gave me an enormous sense of comfort knowing that I was in such great hands. Uh, it probably gave me the strength to fight a little longer. But despite their very best efforts, I could feel myself starting to die. And in, in catastrophic injuries like this, dealing with blood loss, um, you're essentially suffocating uh, because the brain is not getting oxygen. So uh, what the body does to protect itself uh, is it actually pulls the remaining blood it has from the extremities into the chest cavity in order to protect the vital organs. And I could literally feel that happening. 
the blood would creep out of my legs and they creep out of my arms. And, and as all that blood left the extremities, they kind of cramped up and went numb. I could no longer feel them. And, and when that blood creeping sensation hit my stomach uh, area, it, it, it's, it's the point of the injury where I, I kind of realized that the injury was getting out of control. My breathing was extremely fast and shallow by that point. And I was just, you know, fighting to stay alive, but it was, it was, it was going to some inevitable end that I could sense. And, and, um, you know, without trying to do this, you know, a lot of people, <coughs> excuse me, throughout the course of near death experiences, uh, you know, they'll describe things like their life flash before their eyes or, or, uh, you know, kind of this life narrative will appear before them. I didn't have that happen, but what I do believe is what was most important to me was revealed in those final moments. And uh, that's because I, I just instinctively started to repeat the names of my mom and my two sisters over and over and over again, uh, you know, for the last minute of my life. Uh, and then when that blood creeping sensation hit my chest, I, I had a conscious awareness that, that this was it. Right. And, um, and, you know, a second or two later with my last, like I consciously knew I was taking my last breath. I knew that I was transitioning and, uh, I, I died. Look, I have, um, attempted to articulate this experience for years. I've, and, you know, I'd, I'd say this about really all traumatic experiences, the value that we can gain by sticking with them right and deriving meaning in them uh and and some of these feelings and emotions that are experienced at these extremes are novel emotions right they're they're novel experiences in that i have never experienced an emotion like this before right so so, so when people have difficulty describing uh these profound experiences it's it's largely because we don't have the language able to do it uh, so 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 the, the art of articulation becomes very important in processing and understanding our experiences and in deriving meaning in them. Uh, and, and, you know, fortunately, like studying philosophy and metaphysics in grad school kind of gave me a new palette, a new color palette to be able to assess this experience through completely different lenses and find words that I didn't know previously existed. You know, one thing I'll say just broadly, and I've said this for years, is that that final moment of death, it was the most peaceful feeling I've ever experienced in my life. Um, regardless of the pain leading up to it, that final moment of transition was profound. Uh, everything changed. It, it, it was as if every positive, every negative, every good, every bad, everything just vanished. And it was as if the spirit, the soul becomes part of everything and nothing at the same time. It, it was just a, a moment of incredible peace and love. And, and I'd have to say that if there was one kind of primal emotion that was experienced in a more powerful form than I've ever experienced before, it was love uh, at that last moment, love and interconnectedness, uh, you know, uh, kind of being part of everything and nothing at the same time. Where I stopped short in the past, you know, I, I mean, Justin, you've known me for a little while. I've, I've been speaking about this for more than a decade. And, um, you know, I used to describe it as, well, after that, it just kind of faded to black, <laughs> right? And, and that's not really accurate. It was, it was I, I, it kind of, it, it just, that was the best way I could articulate it. Uh, 
but in studying these really advanced philosophies, there's, there's one thing that I'm, I, I will say like with uh, a feeling of certainty at this point, and, and that is that um, there is absolutely no perception of finality in death, meaning it didn't stop. It was, it was a transition. Uh, there is, there's a certain point where, you know, and, and look, this is a much longer and broader conversation and we could probably talk about it for hours. Uh, uh, but there was a certain point where human consciousness in its human form goes away. Right. Uh, meaning that, um, what happened afterwards wasn't necessarily perceptible in the form of human consciousness, but leading up to that point, I was, there was definitely a feeling that I was going somewhere. I was doing something, you know, one of the most common experiences of near death uh, that are reported is kind of a feeling of a tunnel. There's feelings of vibration. I, I, I experienced all of that. It, it, it was kind of a reduction of consciousness, right? A constriction of human consciousness until reaching this final threshold. But, but there was no stoppage in, in terms of that threshold. Death is a movement. Death is a movement, uh, just as birth is, you know, so things get pretty interesting when you start talking about this through the lens of consciousness, you know, you know, we can't remember the precise instant in time that we were born. Uh, we cannot remember the precise instant in which we became self-reflexive conscious human beings in which we knew we were here somewhere in the world. <laughs> right. And I would say the same holds true with death. Like there, there was, um, there, 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 it's more of a fading into death just as we fade into life. Uh, and, and that is, that is something that I think is, is really worth reflecting on. So to kind of finish the story, um, <laughs> I flatlined for 15 minutes, approximately this medical team pulled off a miracle and, and brought me back to life. <laughs> they got a faint pulse back. They rushed me to the green zone, uh, on a black Hawk helicopter where a surgeon performed a perfect vascular surgery the first time out the gate. You know, soldiers were rushing to the base to donate blood because there was a blood shortage at the time. Uh, so they were doing direct transfusions from their arms into mine. Obviously, I was all unconscious at this time. And, you know, uh, eventually regained consciousness, uh, you know, a day or two later uh, to kind of learn that what had happened. And obviously, I learned first that, um, you know, I had flatlined for 15 minutes, but also that Marlon Harper did die that day. Nonetheless, I continued the medical evacuation process uh, back to Walter Reed Army Medical Center and, uh, and eventually uh, redeployed back to Baghdad only about four and a half months later to finish the tour. It's kind of a version of the story there. <laughs> so. I don't think it's a version. I think it's an incredible journey and certainly not one that uh, many people have. But so you talked about returning to Baghdad to finish your deployment with your team. Why was that so important to you? I think that a lot of people that even went through something not as tragic as that would choose to stay home. They would go through their treatment, their recovery, and that would be it because of their fear or whatever that would be uh, back in uh, where that happened. 
So why did you redeploy? Why was that important to you? You know, that's a, a really good question. Um, I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. I, I, I don't believe in absolutes. Um, I, I think a lot of these emotions we experience, we experience them um, kind of simultaneously at different intensity. So we can think of emotions as vectors that all contribute to who we are in a single moment, um, right? So there's varying emotions and varying vectors that, that uh, kind of drove me to go back. Uh, first of all, I'll say that this is not something uncommon to the virtues of uh, uh, those of us in the service professions. Uh, and here I'm talking about, you know, just broadly uh, military, uh, law enforcement, firefighters, emergency medical professionals, right? Um, there is a, a, a very strong uh, component of, of selflessness, right? And, and, and serving a much greater mission and serving a, a greater team. Um, and, and I think that that is even um, magnified maybe when one is in a leadership role. Um, so, you know, I, I was, uh, it, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to be recovering in a hospital bed when your team members are still fighting and in harm's way. Uh, when also the people that you are serving uh, in the Middle East, in this case, the people of Iraq, like, look, Justin, our mission wasn't complete. <laughs> you know, and, and um, so, yeah, I wasn't supposed to even be really walking again for six months. And I, I kind of somehow made my way back into Baghdad uh, about four and a half months later. Um, one thing that obviously drove me to do that was the team, as I already mentioned and explained, uh, not uncommon. I, I believe I, I remember a triple amputee who was in the room next to me, uh, who his first question when he he regained consciousness was, when can I go back? Um, you know, when I asked that to the doctor, the doctor kind of innocently smiled at me and said, son, you're not going anywhere for a while. <laughs> and, um, it was the wrong thing to say to me. All that did was fuel me, uh, to go back even more. The, the, the second thing again is, 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 uh, you know, I talked briefly that the mission is important, right? And, and, uh, obviously there's a huge component of serving one's team, but, our mission there was really to set the conditions of freedom for people in the Middle East. And uh, yeah, you'll find some irreconcilable extremists over there, but the, the high majority, high majority, 95% plus of those people that I encountered were just like you and I, right? They, they, they were innocent people. They were good people. Um, and they did not want to live in an environment of conflict and war and, and we were merely trying to support them and set the conditions for doing this. Just for context, in, in terms of what I spoke to earlier of relationships and trust, like when I was at West Point, uh, I majored in Arabic specifically because I knew I was going to be on the ground with the people. And in order to build trust, it's helpful to be able to communicate them, communicate with them in their own language without the assistance of an interpreter if possible. It's, it's, it's not that I was great at Arabic. I, I certainly wasn't. I was good enough to get by. But, you know, anyone who's traveled probably knows this. Like, it's, it's not that you're fluent in the language. It's that you try, right? That, that, that as long as you're trying to respect their culture and trying to understand, uh, that goes so far in, in, in showing respect and building trust and getting rid of this image we have of the arrogant Americans, right? 
Um, so it was, it was kind of through our dedication to the people and, and, you know, to be very clear, like we had to take tremendous risks to do that. Tremendous risks to go out and meet with a school principal or a city mayor or a shake. Right. Uh, and that's kind of the nature of these environments in order to build trust. We have to be able to, we have to be willing to take on a disproportionate level of risk, uh, and even put our own lives on the line to do it. Um, what I found out, uh, this was before, right before I was shot, I found out that the people were actually calling me, uh, a, a nickname. They had a nickname for me, uh, and they called me Hisan al-Abiyad in Arabic. And that means the white horse. Um, and in, in the Middle East, that's a, the horse is a very powerful symbol of hope. And, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't me. It was what our unit represented. Uh, this was not just me. This was every single soldier in our unit being willing to take these risks, right? So, you know, for the, for the majority of that deployment, up until the point where we got shot, we really didn't, we, 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 we didn't know if what we were doing was working. We weren't getting much intelligence, uh, if any, from the people. Uh, they were scared to talk to us because insurgents were insidious, Justin. It, it was a threat to the insurgent if we would build relationships with these local people, right? Yeah. They considered that a major threat. And uh, to stop the people from talking to us, they would do the most horrendous things. They would rape, torture, kidnap, kill, uh, you, you know, just the, the worst of the worst things uh, in order just to stop them from, from working with us, even if they wanted to. Um, so it was kind of just having faith in that, having faith in those people by looking them in their eyes and believing in them, uh, that, that propelled us to continue to take these risks day in and day out. Indeed, Marlon had to give his life for it. And I almost did too. So did many other people, but what happened after we got shot was profound. And, uh, the, basically what happened is, is when the community got wind of this, uh, that they had shot Hisan Alebia, they had shot the White Horse and team. Um, the population, for the first time, went into an uproar. Um, they, they, you know, my team told me this afterwards. They were coming out on the street. They were pointing, uh, you know, in the direction of the sniper. He went that way. Um, they were calling in accurate intelligence tips for the first time. And my team. Uh, who, by the way, just endured this traumatic event, they, they regrouped, they threw their gear back on, and within six hours, they detained that sniper, who also happened to be, uh, uh, or the cell leader, I don't remember, but um, uh, also happened to be the, one of the top targets that we've been looking for since the day we got into theater, could never find. Um, so so e even despite kind of the tragic nature of this, that, that I think was significant in propelling me to go back um, and to, and to kind of prove to not only my own people, but, but also to the, uh, the people we were serving over there, uh, that, that we were, we were in this with them, you know? And, um, so that inspired me for sure to see that, that glimmer of success, that glimmer of hope. Um, and then kind of on the negative side, uh, I, I, you know, not to end with a negative one here, but, um, you know, the, the, you know, again, in, in terms of psychological trauma and moral injury, which consists in things like shame and guilt, powerlessness and betrayal, uh, guilt was a motivating factor for me to go back to, you know, I was, um, you know, and this is in the, in the form of survivor's guilt, Marlon died. I lived, 
uh, a lot of people think that, uh, I mean, and this is true. I mean, a lot of people who have near death experiences have this profound appreciation for being alive again. I, I can tell you with a straight face that I, I don't think I've ever felt that <laughs> even to this day. Um, that may sound, uh, you know, interesting, but I, I think uh, most of that has to do with the fact that, you know, you, you kind of carry the weight of this and, and it's, it's not something that goes away, right? It's, it's something that we can come to understand. Um, we can achieve harmony with those experiences. <clears throat> um, but it's, it's, it's still this idea of, uh, there's a tremendous guilt and, and, and weight over that. Um, that's one function of it. Uh, another function was really what I was seeing when I was in the hospital. Uh, you know, look, I, I was severely wounded. Um, and, but despite the severity of that wound, um, I was one of the only people in that entire hospital expected to make a full recovery. And, you know, one of the images that I'll never forget, uh, was, you know, this is, point where a couple of weeks later I was on crutches, right? So I was crutching my way around the corner of the hospital. And I remember seeing this young, beautiful girl in her early twenties, uh, pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair. And it's, it's an image that just riveted me, uh, you know, how much their lives were changed, right. In, in that, in that, by that experience and, and, and what lies ahead of them. Right. Um, and it's it's just when you see enough of that over and over and over again. And by the way, this is this is the type of cumulative trauma that our our medical professionals, our firefighters, our police see day in and day out. Um, it, it it absolutely has a very real effect on our emotional and psychological state. Um, so, so so there's also kind of a vector there of guilt. There's a vector of commitment and service. Um, you know, there, there, there's a vector of leadership uh, and, and a variety of complex emotions that uh, somehow, some way, allowed me to get back in Baghdad <laughs> and finish that tour. I think one of the things, and certainly what I've experienced, is nowhere's clear, clear, close to you know your experience with this. But with what you said of kind of looking at that doctor and smiling, saying that you know, essentially he told you the wrong thing. My orthopedic surgeon, who is very well regarded, had told me that I could never work out again. You know, I'd have to find alternative ways to work out. And so my wife had gone and canceled my gym membership and all these sorts of things. And, you know, I had shattered both my shoulders, Humerus was gone in both rotator cuffs. Don't, you know, they had to use donor bone. I have anchors and wire and screws in my, both of my shoulders. And I was on 16 weeks of PT. First four weeks was passive. The other, um, the rest of it was active PT. And so five months post-surgery, so a month post PT, I was swimming in open ocean in St. Lucia when I should have never been able to do that. But the reason why essentially was because I was told I should, shouldn't be able to do that or I couldn't do that. So in that small way, 
I understand what you're saying because I did what I was told I couldn't and shouldn't do. And we recorded the video and gave it to my neurosurgeon or sorry, my orthopedic surgeon. And he had me email to him, uh, to his personal email account because he hadn't seen anything like that. And it was not to say anything about me personally, but it was that, like you talked about, kind of that will to overcome what you're told you shouldn't have been able to do. Yeah, Justin, I applaud you for that. And look, you know, um, I'm not recommending that people go out there and defy their physician's advice or anything like that. But in the same breath, um, uh, you know, physicians are grounded in science and they must tell us what they know based off of strict science uh, and strict science alone. And uh, look, here's what I've learned. And, and this isn't the only time I've kind of moved through something. Honestly, a much more challenging thing for me has been uh, moving through Crohn's disease, um, you know, where I've repeated, you know, just a couple years ago, I had physicians say, look, there's, there's nothing more we can do, right? Just you're going to have to medicate yourself for the rest of your life and, and you know, you're not going to be able to work out. You're not going to be, well, look, here's how I look at that. Um, just because it's a, if a physician says there's nothing more we can do, he or she is not saying that there's nothing more that I can't do. And, and uh, well, how I look at that is, is, is that physician has exhausted the resources that they have at their disposal in order to help, and they are basically tapping out of the fight. Um, you know, and, and one thing that I have learned about moving through psychological trauma is that we have to create our way through it. Uh, creativity is the pathway through trauma and adversity. Um, you know, and, and look, there's, there's, there are so many ways to train and to work out and to move and to, uh, uh, modify our nutritional regime and, and to do a variety of things that can give us an advantage to, to improve our situation and improve quality of life. Um, so I, 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 I will never say the words like there's nothing more we can do. Uh, there's always one more thing we can do. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I'm not like being psychotic about that. Right. It, it, it's, there's, there's certain points where if you're, if you're, if you're going too hard at something like, yes, you could potentially do more damage to yourself. Uh, so you really have to assess your own body. Um, but you know, working out doesn't have to be doing, you know, high intensity workouts, right? It, 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 it can be a variety of different things. Uh, an ex example of this is like a, a kind of a bigger level is, you know, later in my military career, uh, I was in command of a, basically a medical company, right? And uh, in this company was some of the most severely wounded service members that have come back from the global war on terrorism. Severe injuries, right? Major back challenges, somehow, some were amputees, right? And, and, and many of them are told like, yep, we can't work out. We can't do, uh, you know, our standard military physical training. Um, we, we can't move enough to even break a sweat. And, um, you know, by the time I left, <laughs> you know, within a few months, within a few, I challenged my cadre uh, to come up with an adaptive fitness program uh, that, that would basically employ uh, some of the methodology of like things like CrossFit. Uh, you know, back then I was really big into that. And, you know, we had people who couldn't even walk doing full-blown CrossFit. Uh, if I can't sprint 400 meters, maybe I can wheelchair 400 meters. 
And that's what we did. We put people in wheelchairs, right? We looked at their injuries. We, 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 we leveraged some of the same principles of physical fitness that can be leveraged anywhere. And we just used different activities. We got creative. Um, so, you know, that, that creativity can come in the form of physical uh, activity. It can come in the form of, of thought, right? And uh, disrupting our, our biases and our assumptions uh, to come to think about our experiences in a different way, to think about life in a different way. Um, and, 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 and some of that can be very challenging, right? It, 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 uh, uh, but, you know, again, the, the, the point is like, we, we can never stop creating our way through this stuff. Uh, so apply to you for doing that. Yeah, well, thank you. But like I said, you deserve, uh, you know, the, the most applause. But beyond bringing folks on this podcast that have incredible stories and, you know, unique stories, another area that I like to touch on is the topic of leadership. And have you talk, as you've talked about so far, you do have a lot of experience with it, uh, leading uh, teams in the military and, and units and what you've gone on to do since then. If a, for someone that's listening to this, that might not be in that type of unit or structure. They may just be starting out their career or might have an initial leadership position within their company or what have you. What type of, of advice could you take from your years of leadership experience to boil it down to them? Yeah. It's a big question, <laughs> you know, uh, but look, what I would say is, um, I mean, kind of common characteristics of, of leadership is I've always applied them. Right. And, and this is kind of, uh, seemed to work in just about every organization that I've participated in, including the private sector and, you know, places like Tesla, um, when I was there for a while, uh, which is a very high intensity environment. Uh, look, if you're in a leadership position, I think the, the one of the most powerful characteristics of a leader is to stay humble, um, and and to to remember that like I look in every leadership position I've ever been in, I was never the expert in anything. Right? I didn't want to be the expert. My job as a leader is to pull together that team, right, and move them towards a common objective, and that means inspiring each individual on that team. Right. And, and, and to connect them with their purpose in their own way so that they can move forward as a cohesive unit. Um, and and I, I think the, the one of the, the, the leader's biggest challenges, their, their, their biggest roles is to is, is to both provide that guidance. Right. And, and to provide that azimuth, uh, but to also um, place an immense focus on bringing out the best in people. Um, and, 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 and really connecting them with their purpose, with their why, uh, with their mission statement. Um, so, so, so just very broadly, I mean, that's kind of a core principle leadership trait that I, I don't think is foreign to, to many people who are probably listening to this podcast. Um, but I can't emphasize it enough, uh, that, that to connect people with, with, with their core purpose, um, and, and, and to look, I, I trust in the power of the human spirit. And, and, and where that can be activated, um, uh, I, I've, I just believe that organizations can overcome and move through anything, anything. 
I I absolutely agree. And humility, I think, is often mentioned, and it's kind of a throw throwaway word, right? Well, we all need to stay humble, and that's a kind of a phrase. Or, but when people really break down humility and infuse it into their life, a leader or not, actually, it changes your whole prism from the way you look at your life and you carry it on. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, look, I, I mean, humility and empathy um, and compassion, right? It, it, the, these are things that are very difficult to quantify. Um, and, and I think that's, that's maybe the reason why they cannot be taught in PowerPoint bullets. Okay. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's something that really has to be, um, continuously injected into the culture. A priority has to be placed upon it. Uh, we have to be having conversations around these things. We have to be finding out what's important to the employees and why, um, and, 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 you know, more than anything else, it's, it's like knowing that, that I probably don't have the right answer as a leader. Um, and, and, and if I'm not engaging my team, right, to, to, to look, the, the collective power of a team, I applied this in the Middle East, I applied it everywhere, right? Um, to, to, from the lowest ranking private first class to, uh, uh, you know, to, to my, my peers and even senior officers, right? Uh, you, you've got a wealth of knowledge, and a wealth of people who are committed under, under your team. Um, so, so to, to do our best to remove those barriers, right. To, to, um, and, and to bring those people together is, is one of the core functions of leadership that yes, it's not easy to, it's not easy to train in a systematized way. Um, but I, I again, I, I think if, if, um, where you can combine the science of management with the practice of humanism, is is where uh, I, I I tend to see the most profound leaders exist. Sure, and I think that that's a great way of you know, stating it. So something that we were uh, talking about before recording, and you said that you had a very unique answer to, is what does being built unstoppable mean to you? Yeah. Um, well, again, I kind of come back to the same word. There is a very important word is, is humility. Um, that doesn't mean don't be confident. Right. Um, but one thing that I've definitely learned about psychological trauma is, uh, you know, that, that healing is a journey. It's never a fixed point in time. Um, we are constantly developing and growing and, and we are encountering new experiences that could change our perspectives of who we are and change our evaluation of uh, our past experiences, right? So, so, so part of one of our strengths of moving through trauma is to constantly have that strength to look within ourselves and reevaluate ourselves um, based on the changing dynamics of the environment that we're facing uh, and our current development at the time. Uh, the same holds for 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 uh, leadership roles for personal development. Uh, look, it's 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 never a fixed point in time. There's not an answer, right? It, it's 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 more about embracing uh, a a culture and and a personal philosophy of seeking not not knowing knowledge necessarily, but seeking knowledge, and asking better questions. Um, 
this is something I absolutely attribute to my experience in, in grad school, uh, where, you know, look, man, I, I, people say I'm an expert in psychological trauma. And I, I swear to you, I feel like I know less about it every single day. Um, and, you know, I, I, um, one of my professors gave me the best advice in the world a couple of years ago. He's like, read above your pay grade. Right. So, so uh, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of the material I read, it's, it's extremely difficult. It's, it's, uh, it's stuff that frustrates me and <laughs> right. And makes me feel like I know nothing half the time. Um, but it, 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 I, I, I have come to appreciate being disarmed by the thought of others. And I think one of the most valuable things that we can do as human beings is to seek out our biases, seek out what we think we know and question it. Um, because it's, it's, it's that, it's that process of, uh, kind of staying in this, in this more ambiguous state that really allows creativity to flourish. Right. Creativity loves adversity, loves adversity. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot to withstand sometimes and, you know, you have to be careful about how much of that you can endure. Um, and I obviously like, look, you know, it, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean don't be confident and decisive and, and to move through the situation. Right. I mean, I'm that too, believe me. Um, but, but when it comes to having conversations like this, I, I, I you know, uh, you, you know, they'll come a point in, like, thanks, look, time moves, Right. Um, the, this world is never still <laughs> and, and time, uh, this dimension of time can force decisions, right? It can force action. Uh, but where we have the benefit of time, um, staying in, in, you know, using that to, to question ourselves and question what we know, um, is, is what can really lead to a, a greater level of, of personal and organizational development, uh, so that when time does force a decision, uh, we're going to be well prepared to make it and to move through it in, in the best possible way. I think that is absolutely one of the most unique uh, answers to that question. Uh, but that is the purpose of asking it uh, to every guest. Now, as we wrap up, where can people find you on the web? Uh, so you can hit me up at phaedrusfactory.com. Um, that's my website, uh, Phaedrus with a PH. It's, it's, um, it's actually a, a book, one of Plato's dialogues. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, just, so you know, the kind of the context of the name Phaedrus factory. I, I actually, one, I love Plato's novelty. Um, you know, he's the earliest Western thinker and has shaped so much of our thought. Um, but in the book of Phaedrus, it's, it's number one, he, it's where, it, it's where Plato begins to outline his conception of love. Um, but two, it's also where in the latter half of, of, of that book, he actually speaks to, uh, the art of oration, the art of speaking, the art of articulation, um, and, and starts to outline some really novel thoughts about communicating with people, uh, which is really central to what I do. Uh, so phaedrusfactory.com, uh, most of my work revolves around, uh, you know, I, I work a lot with behavioral health clinicians and psychotherapists. Um, I work with a lot of uh, service professionals uh, who are contending with adversity and trauma. Uh, and although it's not yet on the website, I, I obviously do a lot of work on the leadership development side as well. Thank you so much for joining. And as I know you're continuing your studies 
um, and your work with law enforcement and, you know, the public and private sectors and what have you. So as you get further down that path, I'd love to have you back on the show. Well, anytime, Justin, it's always good. Uh, always good chatting with you, my friend. Absolutely. Take care. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you for joining another episode of Built Unstoppable. Please head over to builtunstoppable.com where you can read new articles from Justin Levy. 